so this is uh, this is Strange Murmurings. We have, um, in case you're not too familiar, we are, uh, this is Baron Melkor from the Strange Gods podcast. Um, we have a couple different shows. We've got a new one coming up. Um, and this is our first Strange Murmurings in, in quite some time. So basically, I, I call this the my, my selfish show, or basically we just like to have creators on here and... I just get to ask you a million questions about your stuff because I'm truly interested. It's uh, inspired from how they used to do the, uh, or they, they still do the, the breakfast clubs. I would tune in for the last half hour so I can just hear people talking about their stuff. So uh, very excited to, I'm actually very excited to have, uh, to have our guest on. So um, uh, we have, uh, we have Matt Finch from Frog God Games. Matt, you want to introduce yourself? Hey everybody, I'm Matt Finch. Perfect. What kind of, what kind of introduction you want? <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so um, I guess uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for people for people that don't know. Uh, well, I uh, wrote uh, Osric, which is the uh, retro clone of first edition Advanced D&D, and wrote Swords and Wizardry, which is a retro clone of OD&D, um, plus a fair number of modules and other uh, gaming books like that. Excellent. Um, and uh, we have a we have a Kickstarter coming out now, right? The um, that's right. We've uh, got one for the Swords and Wizardry box set coming up. Mm-hmm. Very good. Actually, pretty excited about that. Um, very good. So you wouldn't happen to know anyone that collects ancient Roman clay oil lamps, do you? Uh, yeah, I do. Do you? Yep. <laughs> Throwing that out there. Right. I assumed I assumed that you saw that on a uh, <laughs> one of the shows that I did. I think it was with Jim Wampler. <laughs> no, not even. I saw that on the the Frog Gods uh, website. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just taking a look there. It's a secret frog yeah, fact. That's, that's that's this is quite a coincidence for people who share the, uh, the hobby of collecting <laughs> right <laughs> ancient oil lamps. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because I, I did actually like a um, you know, curiosity. I just want to listen listen to a couple of interviews that you did, and I noticed one thing that really sticks out is that the um, the majority of interviews that you did were with somebody named Ben. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, from the ones I listened to anyway, I think I I mean I, I went in there just checked. I, I didn't go through all of them all the way through, but I mean I, I think there's maybe three out of the five. Or yeah, that that, that actually might be, and funnily enough, I hadn't really noticed that, but yeah. <laughs> Should should I be Ben this time? Yes, Benny Claire. Um, excellent. So, I guess a couple of questions. Like, what? What? Um, I mean, I, I can kind of understand the the, the the basic, you know, reasoning for for coming out with, uh, uh, you know, clone for AD and D. OSR. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't really want to call it OSR though. I don't know. I don't know, Matt. What, what do you think about the term OSR? Do you, do you think that that's proper? I think For some it's, reason, I just don't. Yeah, it, it's close enough. I mean, it it comes from, you know, way back in time when it was a community that just kind of needed a name for itself, and it and you know the the old school movement seemed to be growing, and so people started talking about a renaissance, and then as that started turning into different things, like you know, publisher movement, um, a style of play, people who used the old books rather than the new ones. Um, you know, that sort of general, we're all in exactly the same community got a little bit off just because it, you know, there were enough people to start having people specialize in it. And so now I think a lot of people think of that as being a publishing thing. Um, 
you know, which probably probably started with the retro clones, just because that was the point at which people had a vehicle to do that kind of thing, um, you know, and be comfortable that it was legal. But um, you know, I think it's um, always been more than just a publishing thing. But I think that the words, you know, sort of taken on new connotations. It's evolved. So, so I don't. I I I I agree. It's a. It's only a very, very approximate way of describing anybody, you know, who who plays old style games or publishes or anything. And what is the um like, like I, I can kind of see the the like the, the the reason for the demand of of the game systems, but I mean, is there was there any other inspiration besides for hey, we're eventually going to run on our rule books? Um, was there any other driving force to, to just having their, their revitalization to the old school rules? Uh, well, oh, yeah. I mean, the uh, <clears throat> the thing was that where it was headed, um, you know, was people were duplicating the exact stuff from advanced D&D. And so there were trademark violations. There were all kinds of copyright violations. There wasn't really the ability for anybody to, um, you know, actually hire somebody to work with them or you know get you know money for selling something which is not a mercenary issue it's that um you know a lot of times that's how you get people together to put together a good product and so people who um you know had money were starting to do that and people who didn't were kind of stuck in the whole um you know i'm doing it you know entirely by myself kind of thing so that was um the thinking there but really the um you know, the, the rewrite is um, certainly what the idea was at the time was not to provide something that people would use when they were playing. It was just to give a, you know, basically create an SRD, a system reference document under the open game license that people would be able to tap into and use if they were publishing something. And that it was, you know, fairly well legally vetted through the whole thing so that it wouldn't, so that the, uh, the OSR, you know, as it was at that time, wouldn't just become kind of a, a pirate's bay of, um, you know, duplicating the old stuff with all kinds of copyright violations and stuff. So, right. yeah, I mean, that at the time, that was far more important than the idea that people were going to actually turn out to be playing these games. Yeah. And I like the fact, and um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm just kind of curious as to the, on this with the, um, you guys have the, the D20 uh, SW, SRD. Is that like an, an official thing or is that something that um, uh, just kind of a community put together website? Where they've got the uh, uh, the OSR, or sorry, the, the Stars and Wizardry Rules uh, reference guide online. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a fan project. There are, there are lots and lots of things, you know, because it's been around since two thousand and eight. So um, there have been lots and lots of fan things that people did, lots and lots of spinoff games using it. Um, so yeah, I mean that's a that's a fan effort to make it um, even easier for people who want to be able to pull stuff out of it and use it i um i think it was i I believe i read it in in one of the campaign guides that frog gods put out um it was something along the lines of how they wanted to introduce a new class for the swords and wizardry version or something along those lines but um uh just uh for for some reason we just didn't want to add it um is there a reason in particular, why there's no, um, uh, I guess, expansion on, you know, the, the core races and classes and things like that for stories and wizardry? Uh, 
Sure, it's because Swords and Wizardry is uh, a clone of the existing OD&D rules. And so, you know, if we added something to it, then all of a sudden it just switches into a fantasy heartbreaker. Right. The, 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 the goal of the thing was to um, preserve the ability of people to use the actual original rule sets. And after this Kickstarter, we are going to come out with some booklets of house rules that are very clear that they're completely optional. And since they're separate in, you know, even physically in the books, um, I, I think that, you know, it helps out the people who play the game who want to have, uh, you know, some additional house rules or options or things like that um but at the same time it, it keeps the it, you know keeping keeping the integrity of the of the original thing because it's not like i designed it it was designed by gary gygax all that i did was rewrite it and take the rules and basically restate them yeah it makes sense so basically just kind of sticking sticking to the core of it and and that that's something that we noticed especially being you know i started with um AD&D 2nd Edition, Bear, I think you started with 3.5 forward, something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of going back, and even then, AD&D 2nd Edition, I played when I was maybe 13, 14 years old, and then I, I jumped back in uh, in the Pathfinder era. So, um, jumping jumping back, uh, I, I find that Swords and Wizardry is probably the easiest way to get back into a system like that because of the whole... Um, you don't have to use the two hit charts and things like that. Um, right. the, the fact of, um, like the, the ascending, descending AC system that you guys use in that, was that purposely put in there for, for situation like that? So it's more accessible to, to newer players or is that, uh, was there a logic for that? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was definitely to be accessible to new players. I mean, when you're, we were rewriting it, but the, the secondary objective of it was to reorganize it because especially, for original D&D, and I don't know if you've ever looked at those booklets, but um, it, the, it was the first time anyone had ever tried to write a role-playing game. It is not, it was, that process was, was streamlined dramatically later on as people sort of figured out, you know, what's the best way to describe a role-playing game in a book? And in the original books, it was, uh, it was quite a mess. Things didn't, you know, progress logically in the way that people learn a game. Um, there were a lot of things that were inaccessible. And so mm -hmm. we certainly did try and make it more workable as an introduction to the game. Because keep in mind, at that point in time, Wizards hadn't put up any of the PDFs of any of the out-of-print material, right. not first edition, not original D&D. So, you know, if, if you wanted to play OD&D, you had to get a, a relatively expensive one of those you know, box sets that's out there. That was the only way to get it. So this, you know, in, in the case of Swords and Wizardry, it was intended um, to be something that people could get for free and learn how to play OD&D. Right. And that's uh, for people that are listening, you can go to, go to frog gods, uh, frog God and, and you can get the, the PDF for free. Uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't done it already. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Bear, what was your, your impression? I mean, Playing because we had in case you're you're unaware we, we did um uh, we had a podcast where we were playing um, Swords and Wizardry we were playing uh, the Blight campaign setting um, it's kind of fell to the wayside we we have another project coming up um, we'll be doing something very similar but um uh, uh, Barry what's your impression and what was your impression jumping to Swords and Wizardry that was my first time um, doing classic. AD&D style play and also going in with a character where I'd attribute roles, state the attribute, <laughs> keep the numbers from 3d6 they fall um, 
And I, I got, I mean, I managed to come away with a character that I really enjoyed, um, uh, Cecil the Illusionist, because I, I, I played the third party Illusionist class. Uh. Um, and it, uh, well, I, I was a lot, I was less useful than a magic user in a lot of ways, but, uh, I had some, <laughs> I had some cool flavor. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate games with a kind of you get what you get and um, sort of mortal mortal outcome uh, philosophy to them. Um, yeah. yeah. And I don't know. One thing I've noticed with uh, more current systems that I experiment with is um, a growing reliance on meta resources. Um, so 2E has hero points now. Um, Starfinder has the resolve points. Um just all these all these ways of making it so you can re-roll your d20 so you don't feel right so you, you feel like you could have tried again or, or you just can straight up spend the point and be like no my character doesn't die um uh although we we, we didn't play by by hard original rules where uh at zero you're dead because um I would have died in the first episode, and that character. Well, I, you know, I don't. I don't either. It's it's a it's a game for house ruling. I use uh -huh, the uh -huh. the version from uh, Advanced D and D, which is where you go down to negative ten, and uh, I, I, once or twice I've even toyed around with something a little bit like the fifth edition's uh, um, making death save sort of thing because I I do like the idea that you that there can be a random element to that rather than a countdown because if you know exactly how long your guy has, you know your cleric can still fight a couple of rounds and then zip over there and cast cure light wounds and everything's all cool. Whereas yeah. in the fifth edition system, you don't actually know how long it's going to be that they've got. Yeah. Um, we, we ended up uh, using a bit of a, uh, like it was, it was a sort of staggering system where depending on how low you went, um, you would have a status effect like uh, stunned or paralyzed. And also there was uh, a risk of scarring. Um, the more you got damaged. Um, I'm actually recently started, uh, doing, um, WFRP, uh, the Warhammer fantasy tabletop, um, latest edition. And, uh, the, the addition of, uh, scarring rules in that has been really fun because I guess I, I like the idea of running PCs in the ground until they're, uh, basically, a, uh, basically a quadriplegic. Yeah. Call us a who sort of approach only. For <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, what um, as far as like house ruling, what what do you find in, in your games, Matt, that you you need to add into your games? Like, like what house rules do you think are essential in your games? I don't know that any are essential in my games. I mean, I, I let people, um, you know, play. Uh, classes that would be forbidden under the original rules like you know if somebody wants to be a dwarven cleric i don't have any problem with that mm -hmm. um the uh and, and there are reasons why they had you know those things blocked out and an odd sort of um races class kind of um aspects to it but i you know but i i skip over those and let people be what they want to be um i use two different initiative systems depending on whether i'm in a convention game or whether i'm in a home game um, for the convention games, I use a, I use a phased initiative system, like a war game, where you do a particular type of thing all the way around, then another type of thing, rather than and uh, you know in the home games I do one that's more traditional, where you do whatever it is you're doing in a round, and then you move to the next person and they do whatever it is that they're doing in a round instead of separating it by action types. Um, 
Oh, what else? I think those are the main things where you where I'm constantly house ruling. I've tried out, you know, different other things as experiments, but those are the areas where I generally house rule from the from the original. I think our and again, we're we're coming from, you know, heavy heavy rule system like Pathfinder, you want to sneeze, there's a rule you got to make for that, you know. Right. Yeah. We're coming from from that type of system to to uh, a very rules light system. So, I think our our biggest thing was was skills. We had the hardest time trying to adapt to, um, okay, yeah, the, the fighter, you know, if he wants to climb a tree or something, he, he should be able to do that. But it's like, well, I don't know, should he? And, you know, really trying to narrow it down without making it into a rules-heavy system, you know, was, was kind of difficult. Um, I think that was that was hard coming from, like, the more rules-heavy, uh, you know, taking a step backwards. But I think that was our, our biggest... I think it's way, way harder to take a step backwards from what you learn yeah. into rules simplicity than it is to learn with a rules simple game and then move to a rules heavier game. I mean, moving to rules heavier is completely intuitive. There's just more rules. Right. But when you're moving backwards, it's like you don't know um, how to replace it. You know, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing here? And so, you know, the um, you know, you, you get on a forum and somebody, you know, or, or Facebook and something, and you may get, you know, somebody who's just saying, well, of course you, you know, make up some number and you say to the fighter, you know, it's a, well, let's say you got a one D six chance on this tree. And then the next tree, you're like, you know what, that's a big enough tree that you can get up. It just fine. And that sort of, you know, uh, wild randomness in terms of what's going on, as opposed to something that moves orderly, like a, a regular game, um, is something that people don't really it is not something that instantly springs to mind but it's mm -hmm. a phenomenal you know play style once you've got the idea of how it works but you have to get the idea of how it works yeah and i think that's uh, that's probably there's a lot of stuff that i took from playing swords and wizardry and could apply to the newer systems because with the newer systems it's just that you've got a rule for everything but you, you step back and you're kind of forced to make these decisions and kind of forced to be a lot more creative about solutions um it, it gives you a lot more that you can take to uh you know the more modern games another another thing that it, uh, it makes you confront is um there there doesn't always need to be a role especially when there's no consequence for failure or extreme success um so when there's no like well okay make the skill roll let's see if you roll in at one and decide what ridiculous thing could happen uh which often happens in 5e now or if you roll in at 20 that they justify this like moment of uh godlike ability even if they're not really particularly trained in the skill um you sort of uh it, it, I guess it sort of grounds it more in like uh, realistic expectations almost um, like a lot of people can climb a tree uh, if it's like low and there's plenty of branches but uh, hugging your way up a hugging your way up a tree is ridiculous stuff like that it, it lets you it does it does let you focus on the things that specifically matter to the game and and it's somewhat easier I think and th this is you know a lot of people in 5e do this you know just fine or even beautifully but the hand waving um you know toward the 
um, the more important stuff tends to be easier when you don't feel like, you know, well, we have to, we have to do this, 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 and this. Cause when there's all, already a really light, you know, rules focus on the game, it's pretty clear, you know, you can just, all right, so we, you know, we get to the tavern, you know, that kind of thing. There was an episode of our sort of main podcast in Pathfinder where we essentially spent the whole time fighting a door, which is really hard to open. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. I mean, I think in classic, even if like, well, because it wasn't even locked, like it's just like, it was just like uh, swollen in place because of moisture in the cave. So like it sort of it, it could have been hand waved like oh eventually you beat the door down that's essentially what we did but with pathfinder it's very uh, action by action like how much do you beat the head the door down in this amount of time but um, right and the, more, more know, classic wise is like okay eventually you do that yeah i mean the the way that that it's done in uh in od and d is basically look if you, if you don't get it open the first time then you're not going to surprise anything that's in there and then right. you, you, uh, although interestingly, you can do all of the roles because occasionally you will get a door that a group can't open. And that in and of itself, you know, unless you've carefully structured an adventure where they have to go through that door, um, you know, that's, that's one of the possibilities in there. And then you just come back later with, you know, gunpowder or an ogre or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think that was one of, one of the first Pathfinder games that I ran we came into that situation where it was just it, it was a it was a one-off. We're playing a Pathfinder scenario, uh, um, or society scenario, and you know we made these characters, and then we were stuck in a basement, and we had to get through this door, and there was no fighter, and there was no rogue, so like there was no way by the rules that we could get that thing open. It's just uh, you know yeah it's it's yeah, just, that's that's silly. Yeah, yeah. So you've got. Um, yeah, like I said, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of freedoms that you get from playing Swords and Wizardry that you can take forward into the more modern games, and uh, you know, if you yeah, go into it's it, not like yeah. it's not like you can't do all of that stuff in the more modern games. It's just that when you you know learn the rules that way, they right. tend to suggest to you that you can't just you right. know go past the rules, and it's just a, it's just a thing you get in your head from learning with those rule sets, but. Um, you know, they, they can all be played that way, but it's just easier to play it that way, um, you know, using one of the older systems. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of new, newer school players that are, you know, Hey, it's not a rule. I can't, you know, it can't happen. It's not, you know, and, and I think it's just one of those things where, you know, it's like, it's like sending somebody on vacation. It's like, listen, relax, play a game where you can, you know, do what you want. Let's do it the right way, you know. And then from there, they kind of get get forced to think of things, uh, you know, outside of the rules. You know, you can put the book down. It's not in there. Yeah. So um, what is, uh, I, I, I guess, what's what's your personal favorite setting that you've either worked on or played before? I mean, is there is there a particular setting that um, kind of stuck out to you? Um, well, let me see. I honestly, I, I like the original Greyhawk for a total world setting. It, um, not at all the developed one, but just as it came out in the, in the very bare bones sort of thing. And that's just cause it's a very evocative, um, you know, setting. It's basically the 14th century only with magic and weird stuff behind it. And it's, you know, the great phenomenally good map by Darlene that came with that. And I also liked the very first iteration of the Forgotten Realms too, although probably not as much as I liked Greyhawk. Um, and then 
I wasn't a real fan of the whole Wilderlands fantasy the Judges Guild did, but I really loved the City State of the Invincible Overlord as a city yes. adventure. Um, <laughs> that is I, actually the first campaign setting I've played. Yeah, yeah. That and that, was, my, that yep. was really, that can't be top. That was amazing, yep. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've got my own campaign that I use, which is a, a world called, called Jordabo, which is more of a kind of a... Um, is a swords and sorcery. I guess you would sort of call it Mediterranean or really sort of a North African kind of setting. Um, uh, but that's not a published one, or I've published little tiny bits of it. But um, I, I would say the big one really are, are, are Greyhawk, early Greyhawk, early Front Realms, and City State. Yeah. yeah, I think that was my. I, I got. Uh, my, 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 that's how I got into it. My parents for Christmas one year decided to buy me, um, it was the Mayfair Games version of City State of the Invincible Overlord, not knowing what it was. You know, they, they purchased it. My, my brother had actually been, um, playing an AD&D game. And so my brother's like, oh, okay, we're going to get you some dice. So he took, he took me to the, to the store with my, with my parents. And he's like, okay, he's going to need this book and this book. He's going to need this set of dice here. He's going to need character sheets. So, so, my parents put it all together. I'm like, it's like a hundred bucks. It's like, it's like, no, we, we bought that thing on clearance for like three dollars. <laughs> that was good, yeah. Oh, um, first classics go. I love me Planescape and Sigil. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I want. I want. I've been wanting to play a game with the Lady of Pain, staring over my shoulder at some point for a while. I just yeah, saw. A, that w- I saw a belt buckle with the Lady of Pain on it. That would um, just—if you have a paunch, that thing's gonna stab you. That sounds terrible. That was—that was the first. Well, I mean, it sounds—it yep. pa- sounds painful, so it's—it fits. But oh my god, yeah, it's, it's not wrong. <laughs> That's awesome. I have to find that now. Yeah, that it's was actually Alex. It's Al- It's a, it's Alex Camry. He's the guy who runs Game Hole Con, and. Uh, and, and he's like he runs marathons and he's super skinny, so he I think he's uh, not seeing that the way that all the rest of us are. <laughs> yeah, Planescape was the was the second campaign setting that I played. Actually, it's kind of funny. Um, it shows you what time I, I thought Planescape was very very creative for what was out there because at the time again AD and D second edition, um, you know I had been playing in a uh, Forgotten Realms game and then just. Uh, I don't know. Just just seeing seeing the setting, it's almost it's almost like semi steampunk kind of. Um, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, do you play any other style of games, or are you like a um, swords and wizardry D and D exclusive? Yeah, I'm pretty much a one trick pony. Although I like uh, I like Traveler and I like Call of Cthulhu, but it's just not stuff that I've you know happened to be playing. Um, recently but i'm not i'm not one of the people who um you know tries out tons of different games and you know is able to you know, judge between them and so on i'm just pretty much a, a D guy yeah traveler is one i've been wanting to try, is one i've been wanting to try probably run yes. even because i just like uh i just like stranded sci-fi i guess yeah. i'm very down to playing that game yeah that's um i, I like the the concept of the the, the whole character creation in that. Oh yeah. I, I just, yeah. That's amazing. I talk about taking, else... talk about taking what you get. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of the appeal. And that, that was like when, when we had run the game for the podcast, that was something that we said, it's like, all right, we're going to try to stick. We're going to try to stick to it as close to as written as possible. You know, we had to 
modify the death rules essentially just for continuity purposes. Because like Bear was saying, his character would have been dead in the first episode uh, had we not put some kind of buffer system in there. So, he had four health. Yeah, <laughs> when, he had four uh, health and another character hit him with a board. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, when, when that character finally did die in a way that was more like, I mean, he was killed by a demon, so it was more dramatically appropriate, I guess. Um, I, I freaking rolled jackpot and got a ranger. Uh, which I was able to play until the, the game fell off because we lost players. But um, I don't know. It, I guess it. Uh, well, I guess my ultimate goal is to roll the ridiculous stats you need for like an OD and D paladin. Oh yeah, like you eighteen get and the, everything basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the seventeen or eighteen on charisma. You know, three d six straight up and on the on one particular stat is quite something. I don't know. There, there is maybe I'm just maybe I'm just a jerk at heart, but uh, the, I did get a little bit of the ooh. I got some you guys don't got because I qualified for, <laughs> for one of the classic archetype power classes. Although we also had somebody who qualified for assassin, um, somebody who I think could have been a druid, elected not to be. Um, a lot of a lot of cool options like are in the expanded game already, but um, you still have the the core stuff there. Um, I, I think if you inject enough flavor into it, like. Being a human fighter is perfectly great. You just decide to be like I'm a freaking warrior poet, um, something like that. But uh, there is a lot of people where it's like my character, my my class is just one line of text and is swings a sword good. I can't do anything with this. Yeah, but you know the story. The story comes out of the playing of it. So mm-hmm. eventually, you know, at the very least, you're going to have. Excuse me, you're going to have the one war story where you rolled the 20 right when you needed it against a certain thing. And you're like, you know, yes, I am the greatest rat killer in the universe or whatever it is. (laughs) And it builds from there. You never know where it's going to go. I like that that concept of it, too. It's just really you're... Uh, relatively average, like like in in anything modern, it's like you know if if you roll a fourteen versus a versus a twelve, it's a massive difference. But you know in um, uh, Swords and Wizardry, it's it's not. It doesn't really matter that much depending what you're trying to do. It's more of if you roll extremely well, it's good. If you roll extremely poor, it's bad. Otherwise, it's you're you're pretty average. There's nothing. There's no major um, uh, you know buff or, or bane that you gain from that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not used for the toggles um, of of fairly small increments. The way that you know, for example, in fifth right. edition, the uh, you know the, your athletics check is going to vary by you know very closely by where exactly your your uh, your dexterity stat is. So we played in our in our the the podcast we were in Swords and Wizardry. We, we played um, scenario. Uh, the Crooked Nail that takes place in the Blight, and it was written by um, by Brandon, Ho- uh, yeah, Brandon Hodge, and I, I reached out to him, and it was really funny because like the uh, basically he explained like the the origin of the story, like how he came up with it. it was basically you know just part of one of his ongoing campaigns, and he kind of told me the original story and everything. And it just it cracked me up just to see you know as it was how, how it's written, you know how how people can go into it and play it, and like how we played it versus how the original concept came up. Like is is there any um, is there any cool you know great story of of something that was homebrewed on your end that wound up becoming part of part of another campaign or part of a story um i I can't think of anything off the top of my head that made its way in part and parcel but um you know one thing about writing adventures is they they sort of and and probably it's different with different people but with me it's um the 
it comes from lots and lots of different sources. Um, a lot of things get tossed down on a page early on, and then they seem to come together as uh, as it develops a little bit more in my head. And so there are a lot of little piecemeal things that either come from something that I played or that are are close i mean they're they're like inspired by something that i did but i thought of a better way it could work out you know it's kind of like you know when you're like you know what i should have said just then what i should have said (laughs) (laughs) it's um yeah so what is um uh uh, i guess it's kind of it's gonna sound like a dumb question but what's the what's the inspiration for um uh kind of keeping with with frog gods anyway with with keeping the um the different systems um i don't know i think i'm going to answer my own question here but just kind of keeping keeping the availability like to me to me i guess i'll, I'll put it this way like i first heard of swords and wizardry because i i got a 5e copy of a frog gods game yeah. like is there a system that that frog gods tends to favor or is it more like, do you write the stories for swords and wizardry and kind of uh, say, Hey, let's make a five E version of it. Or is, are the concepts kind of like, do you make them more, you know, system agnostic and then go from there? Like it really depends on the author. Um, yeah. I, I think we've gotten really, really good at taking a fifth edition adventure and recasting it for the way that swords and wizardry is played and vice versa because there are when you're writing modules there are different important things and in in terms of the way that people are going to move through an adventure depending on which rule set they're using there it's a lot more than just changing numbers around to 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 do something like that And and the obvious one is you know um sort of skill check kind of thing the, the 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 approach to skill type checks in um in fifth edition fifth edition has sort of a passive radar system um that you're you know you've got perception going on most of the time and what the effects of that are going to be as opposed to in a lot of swords and wizardry adventures it's just sort of well you know if they're close they hear you if they're far they don't kind of a thing um mm-hmm. And so those there, you know, there, there's a fair amount that has to be done. But you, you know, an author is best writing in the system that they like to write in. And even though it shouldn't really have an effect, you're still going to get, you know, honestly, and I, I don't know why, but you're going to get better backstories. Um, you're going to have more interesting NPCs. It's just there's something stultifying, I think, about trying to write in a, a system that's not the one that you like the best. Um, even if there really shouldn't be there, there just is one. So tell us about the, uh, the Kickstarter. Okay. Well, um, we're, we, we're simply running out of the, uh, uh, the backstock that we've got of the complete rule books. And we said, okay, anything we can do that's more interesting, um, than just reprinting or do we just reprint? And we decided that, uh, you know, we were, familiar enough with um producing stuff that um that we thought a box set would be something that we could do and since the whole thing stems from an original digest sized box set 
we decided we would do one of those and we'd make one version of it that looked you know a fair amount like the style of the original and then we would do one that had a much more you know let's take advantage of um you know more modern art techniques and design and come out with something that we think looks cool on the more modern end for it and that's where we went to and uh what's going into the uh box set actually i haven't uh, been able to follow it sure uh, well, it's going to be the it's the it's basically the complete rule book just divided up into uh, four different segments, which does make it easier. Um, you know, for example, if you're um, a spellcaster that you've only got a one, you know, pretty small little book that's got the spells in it if you need it for reference rather than having to page through a larger book. Um, so it's got those four books in there and it's got a uh, set of character sheets in there that are you know small because this is a digest size book and it's got dice and there are going to be one or two extraneous um or rather extra pages in there that um you know we're not really telling people what are going to be on them yet not you know not tremendously cool secret stuff but um you know just stuff that we're putting in um and i think we may have a bookmark that's going in there too i can't remember whether we uh, got to the point where we were putting an extra physical bookmark in the book. There's been a great deal of discussion about bookmarks because I don't understand why people think bookmarks are cool. And yet a whole, a whole lot of people think that bookmarks are just the coolest thing. And so, um, so we're thinking about putting a bookmark in there. <laughs> uh, lame. I, I just like forgetting where I was and looking and forgetting how to use a table of contents. <laughs> okay. Good point. Bend the corners over. It's not hardcover. It's just... Oh God, no. <laughs> yeah, that's great uh, let's see I'm, I'm, I'm taking a look at the kickstarter here just seeing if there's anything um, is there any like because um, I, I I guess part of the if, if somebody were to start if they wanted to get into swords and wizardry um, where would you point them for like a, um, you know, besides for Frog God's website, I mean, if somebody wanted a, a, a quick start module or, or, or a game or something to just kind of jump into, um, is there is there a good place for them to find something like that? Uh, in terms of a fan site, we've had fan sites sort of come and go, um, you know, just sort of the way that fan sites tend to do. Um, we have um, several, I mean, we've got an introductory module uh, Grimsgate, and we're writing a second one for those who um, would want a, a different one called Baron's Gambit. And I would say that the thing to do is probably just grab the rule book, you know, or the free PDF of the rule book, um, and then grab a copy of Grimsgate and and take it from there. I like it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know a good amount of, of Swords and Wizardry, but what's what's the history of of, of Osric? I mean, that was kind of the, the predecessor. Yeah, that was the that was you know the first you know real um, retro clone that was trying to um, you know restate rules of an old edition um, completely uncreatively. You know, not adding anything from the authors. Uh, but just to get something out there that people could use, and, and that was Osric. And uh, that was done by me and Stuart Marshall. Um, we um, met each other on the a forum called Knights and Knaves, and um, uh, I, I, 
had this feeling that this was necessary. Although, you know, it's, it's really easy to say now in retrospect what it was that was in my head, you know, to create a publisher resource that would allow people to do that. At the time, that was a lot fuzzier. And I couldn't really even explain to people why it was uh, that I thought it was important that somebody did this because they're looking at me, you know, rewriting the whole thing. And they're like, well, dude, you know, the books are cheap, you know, grab, you know, why, why try and rewrite something? Because at the time they were cheap. And, um, and, and Stuart sort of got what it was that I was trying to do there. And then, um, and so he, um, he did a, you know, a, a fair amount of, of the editing and finishing out a lot of stuff. I should say that, um, you know, he's kind of the hero of the story because at that time we didn't know, we really thought we were going to get sued over writing that book. <laughs> Um, because you know, the, the whole past history of TSR, although not so much wizards who owned it at the time, but TSR was very litigious about things. Yes. And, um, you know, so probably we're giving it like an 80% chance. So Stuart is listed as the author on that book because he's in the UK and it's a lot <laughs> harder for somebody in the States to sue somebody in the UK. Whereas I would be pretty much a sitting duck here in the U S and so I'm listed as the initial author and he's listed as the author. And then that, that actually becomes more true as time goes on, because once people started saying, you know what, we want this fleshed out, uh, with monsters and with more of the rules and more of the stuff in there, because the first version was relatively skeletal. It was just for people to, refer to in something where we were expecting people would be using a monster manual or stuff like that. Uh, the only, the only monsters were skeletons. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, so that, uh, so we, he, we, we did an Osric 2.0 and that one, um, Stuart was sort of an editor in chief and he did the vast, vast, vast bulk of that one. So the, uh, you know, in that, I think the, the, the part that I actually wrote is probably only, uh, it's probably not more than 25% of it and maybe less than that in the version of Osric that people see now. But the first version of it was probably about 85% mine and about 15% of Stuart stepping in and finishing off, um, you know, places where I'd had creative block about how to do something um, and stuff like that. Now with, um, with, with Souls and Wizardry, you, you've got the, you've got the three different, versions essentially and a lot of people have asked me hey, what, what, what rule set do you use and I've just kind of always used complete because it's what I happen to get is there a major difference between the white box the core and the complete or is it really just um, um, you know little subtleties well the, the core is now uh, yes there are major differences between them um, what they are but there are three historical periods in the development of OD&D um, white box is just the first three books which frankly very few people ever played with just those because the Greyhawk supplement was not long until that came out. Um, but a lot of people, whether it's just that they want to really see what it was about at the beginning or because they prefer it, um, because it is once again, simpler. Um, so white box, for example, does not even have, um, variable hit dice. Everybody gets a D six for their hit dice, whether they're a fighter or whether they're a magic user. Um, Monsters all have six hit dice. Weapons all do one d six points of damage. It's a much, much, it's a very, very minimalist system. The white box one, and then um, core has sort of been left behind in the history 
of swords and wizardry it was it happened to be the snapshot that i was playing right at that time which was simply it was the white box plus the greyhawk supplement and the greyhawk supplement is the one uh, it's the real watershed in DD because that's when they begin adding the different dice types to things um so that you've got uh you know fighters have a larger hit die for example than magic users and um there are a lot of changes that happen in there but it's um that's kind of a it's that that's in the middle it's neither the beginning nor the end and the beginning and the end are always the most popular so there's white box which is the beginning and then complete is basically everything that was written of you know for for odnd um by you know the sort of tsr official stuff so it's all of the supplements it's uh, articles from the strategic review dragon magazine um it includes some stuff from the holmes basic set which is which I consider to be OD&D because it was originally written as a codified version of OD&D. Um, and then they changed it to, to become a basic set for AD&D, but it, at heart, it's actually OD&D. Um, so all of that stuff coming together to be um, the version of original D&D that existed right before they came out with advanced D&D. You know, it's up to the last second kind of a thing. That makes more sense. I think I was I was reading somewhere about how uh, the the hit die for the, the hit die for the monsters was d6 versus d8. I think that was as far as I delved into it. I'm just kind of sticking with the complete rules. Right. Yeah. That that you're looking at the difference between white box and uh, and complete right there. That everything was a one d6 in white box, and then it became variable. Monsters happen to have the eight sided hit die. Um, you know, like they do pretty much forever onward. <laughs> right. How do I get my DM to house rule that my special golden boy gets to use D20s for his head dice? <laughs> get a new GM. Or GM your own game. Be the GM, just write a novel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I remember going into... Because uh, I, I wanted, I was thinking about trying to run like an AD and D second game, and because uh, that that was you know that that was the one I, I originally started on, and I remember going into uh, I picked up one of the books, I don't remember what it was, but basically there was there was an optional perception uh, system where there were like smell stats and, and sight stats, like you'd break down perception, and I'm just looking into like all these ridiculous rules, and and it's just funny because seeing stuff like that, and then. You know, you you look at like the plethora of rules for like three point five in Pathfinder. It just it just cracks me up how far it's straight, I guess, from the original. Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, not not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, I look at three point five, and it's like you know, pretty much any one of those rules independently is pretty cool and pretty workable. Yeah. It's just when you put them all together and then manage to interlace them with a, a fairly elegant, uh, you know, resolution system so that you get something that can't really be, uh, you know, it's a black box. You can't get in there and tinker with it anymore. Um, but you know, it's, is when you, when you do the reduction down to the atoms, um, you know, third edition is, is quite a good system, you know, and, and, and I would enjoy playing it if I had the ability to just, you know, pick and choose some of these kinds. In fact, a lot of those are things that I used as house rules, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, a flanking attack instead of, a, a yeah. you know, in, instead of a, a backstab sort of situation where all, you don't have to be necessarily behind them. You just have to have somebody else on the other side of them. You know, that's a good rule. Yeah. I think we, we tried, we, like I said, there's a lot of that stuff that we tried to house rule in, but it, we, we, we were so tossed from 
you know, which which rules do we want to include? Which ones do we want to try playing without? You know, that type of deal. I think we did wind up going with some kind of flanking system in there. Yeah, but it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's different. Like like um, how with with critical hits, you know, basically add one. You don't you don't want to do double damage. You want to do anything crazy, right. and. Um, you know, again, it's just especially going backwards. You don't know what to include, what not to include. So it's just kind of very interesting. Um, I don't know. Have you played? Um, have you played much Five E or Pathfinder or anything? Anything along those lines? I mean, have you played any of the newer systems much? Yeah, I played. I played a lot of three point five and a lot of fifth um, edition. Never played Pathfinder and just like maybe two games of fourth and i didn't really dig into the rules to get a sense for that i was just sort of sitting uh sitting at the table playing the way that people said to play you know the the sort of way that you start you know with a new game so but yeah plenty plenty of play time spent on uh uh third edition and on fifth edition now, fifth, fifth to, to me anyway it seems like uh fifth versus like third and and again i, I skipped fourth as well um, seems like they're kind of they, they were kind of trying to go for the spirit of relaxing some of the rules, like kind of taking away a lot of the black and white. I mean, you kind of get that 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 vibe from it as well, or oh, definitely. I mean, they they actually hired as consultants a couple of the people who were sort of um, you know out there in in the OSR. So I, it was a it was clearly a, and, and people have told me too it was a conscious decision to at least listen to the design thinking that was going on in the osr at that time to see um you know what they could develop from that so i mean obviously there was stuff where they were you know doing their own thing and looking forward to uh what they thought would make it a better name but there was a a definite focus on the on, on on dialing back the rules and sort of in the direction at least of what people were talking about in the osr yeah now what can and i know we'd mentioned it but like um what can be expected like like um you said that the uh, frog gods coming out with like some 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 house rules or some some optional uh, uh things coming out for um for swords and wizardry are, are they planning on on releasing um much like like the original um uh, uh I'm, I'm losing the word there uh they, like the the original expansion books that would that would come out like for the for the old school um anything like that coming out or we we may i mean we're not we we know that some of those are going to be monster books because the the original monster book we did for swords and wizardry was just so huge that you couldn't really reprint it nowadays at at a price point people would be interested in but um so we know that a lot of those are going to be monsters and then for the stuff that's about the house rules we haven't really yet blocked out what it is that we want to put in the first one um We've got one in Monster. I should say that there's that along with the Kickstarter, there's also an extras pack where you can get a, a, a Dungeon Master screen. Um, there's that's where the the new introductory module is going to be. That's going to be where um, there's a uh, you know the the first sort of supplemental book that that contains more monsters for it. Um, so, um, but but beyond that, we haven't really. Um, you know, nailed down exactly what content we're going to have in there. There's, there's actually a lot of it because we've had lots and lots of articles written by fans um, that, you know, that we know people want to see touched upon. Um, you know, there've been things like variant thief classes, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just, it'll, it'll be a lot like the, um, uh, the, the D articles that came out in the dragon magazine. It'll be, you know, scattershot, yeah. just stuff, whatever it is that we think is interesting that people will like to see. 
Yeah, I, I think I think in my opinion, I think that's you know, like you said, you, you've got the the original copy of of the, the core of the game, but at some point you get to say, hey, let's what would we add to the original? You know what I mean? Like what what do we think was missing? Let's let's expand on it. You know, sure, and just... that's absolutely the way that people you know played it back in the day. This was going out you know originally to uh, you know wargaming clubs and stuff where where people hacked every single game they ever saw. So that was. <laughs> you know, completely expected that, that was what was going to happen. I, you know, they were shocked when they began, when they ran across the concept of um, somebody wanting to follow exactly the rules as written without anything, you know, really added in there. Um, Cause you know, wargaming has tremendous rules lawyering, but it doesn't have any problem with tinkering. So. Right. I don't know, Barry, you got anything else to add? Uh, yes. Do you fall? Do you find yourself more uh, relating to the swords or the wizardry? The wizardry. <laughs> I'm one of those boring, boring people who Nerd. Plays, <laughs> plays the same character every <laughs> single time, and it's always a wizard. They always run around and push the buttons and the levers. That's why I had to be a DM because no one liked to be in a party with me. How many? <laughs> how many times do you think that character died? I just I just hear wizard pushing buttons and I have I have automatically bad connotations. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, multiple times. Although I, you know, I I will say I'm pretty skillful at figuring out how to push the buttons and the levers or yeah, predict yeah. what it is that they're going to do and stuff like that. I, you know, the the person who's just a jerk running around and pushing it because they haven't thought about it yet is uh, that's that I, I'm a little better than that. Yeah. yeah. I guess I can I can lead to the question here. What kind of what kind of game style do you prefer? I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion I've had like here on Ten Cards about that. Like, do you um, when you're playing a character, do you kind of um, are, are you do you kind of let the character play the game, or do you kind of play the game through the character? Like, um, uh, like do you meta game? I guess, I guess essentially is is it? Would you prefer? Uh, like trying to take the story into the character's point of view or, or, you know, how, how do you take, how do you approach playing a character? Um, if I understand what you're asking on the simplest level, I'm not somebody who likes the kind of game where I do what my character would do, or I only know what my character would do. I like it to be a game of skill as a player where I'm trying to sort of advance this character forward in this hostile world to make them rich and famous and you know protect other people or whatever the thing you know might be that's in there is that is that really is that what you're asking is yeah, that pretty much like, or? yeah like if, if you're playing a game and and you're all right you guys are facing a troll your your character's never adventured before he's just a farm guy that just all of a sudden has a sword and now he's fighting uh, would he know that you know burning this troll would stop him from regenerating like are, are you someone that would play it in that way or is it more of okay i've got this fighter i know that troll's going to regenerate let me burn it yeah light him up yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've noticed that that that's a big um uh it's a, a very different play style that i see between different groups of players i was just kind of curious how, how you took that yeah yeah it's a, you know it's a, you know it's a it's a game of skill um, as a player in the way that I like to do it. And a lot of people like to get more immersed in the character. And, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I like that kind of play too. And I've certainly, uh, you know, done it sometimes depending on, you know, sort of what's going on in your own life, whether you feel like playing a game of skill or whether you just want to be a freaking paladin. But <laughs> 
but yeah, I've, I've, I've played both ways, but I think, I think my default, um, because it's, it's, you know, when you've got a world that's defined out there and a lot of it, you know, is defined in tables and things like that, that are sort of objectively in the rules. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it requires some good thinking to come out of it alive. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, and, and so that's, that's a, a difficult game in and of itself. Uh, and I find, okay. Sorry. I, I think I, I personally find a mix between my character may make the least strategically, vi- like a less strategically viable option in role play. Um, because that's where you're, you're acting as the character, but in a combat, because there it shifts for a lot of games anyway it shifts very much to mechanical crunch and if you aren't treating it as like the one game piece that you have um and acting in its, in yours and its best interest then um you, you're just going to get a dead character yeah it cracks me up though when you when you have a tpk and it's like well that's what my character would do it's like yeah but you know <laughs> like you knew that was going to happen come on yeah all right. Well, um, I guess kind of wrapping it up. Um, uh, anything else going on? Anything else that's that's coming in the down the pipeline? Um, not instantly for swords and wizardry, or for the. I mean, one thing that people might be interested in is the the people who play fifth edition. Uh, we're going to be running a Kickstarter for Glen Seals Midderlands campaign for fifth edition. Um, so that's not entirely on point here, but that is the next thing that we're going to be doing at Frog God after the Swords and Wizardry Kickstarter. Um, it's actually Necromancer Games, and I think it might actually launch right at the end of the uh, Swords and Wizardry Kickstarter before it's even done with. But um, so I think a lot of people will um, be, you know, some people will be interested in that. It's really more for the fifth edition audiences to to run into the Midlands. Excellent. Now, how long is the um uh kickstarter running on so uh we've got i think it ends on wednesday so today's oh, cool. sunday right. so monday tuesday wednesday we're, we're getting into the the run-up period at the end um so that's that's going to be fun very good all right there anything else uh thank you mr finch for uh streamlining the the game clone whatever uh that gave me one of my favorite characters a magic okay. u- a yes a wizard or illusionist magic user whatever who had high intelligence a certifiable genius but uh six wisdom so i just decided that he never knew when to shut up it was uh it was very fun to play and finally watch him die <laughs> well, you're very well. <laughs> <laughs> excellent well thank you for joining us and uh i guess uh any questions quick before we uh before we call it a show What's a Thacko? Oh, uh, you don't want to know. Just ignore it. Don't answer that question. He's going to, yeah, you don't, you don't want to know. <laughs> to hit armor class zero. You don't need that. You don't need it. No, get rid of it. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for the uh, uh, the variant uh, AC system. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, anyone interested, definitely check out the Kickstarter. Take care, guys. 